0: Hi, thanks for being here. For the last 20 years, I've had the privilege of broadcasting engaging conversations with teachers and authors, scientists and engineers, CEOs, journalists, artists, academics, the makers and thinkers who shape the world we live in. I'm Lyle Troxell. Welcome to Geek Speak. The Software Arts is a new book by MIT Press by Warren Sack and we're going to be doing multiple episodes of Geek Speak around the topic of this book. It's shaped a lot about what I've been talking about on Geek Speak and, and how I think about software in general. My friend Warren Sack is the author, and he's sitting with me. Hi, Lyle. Hi, Warren. Thanks for being here.
1: It's my pleasure. MIT Press
0: has a series of books called Software Studies, and your book, The Software Arts, is released in that series. And I think you and I have talked over the years about how
1: fundamental software is shaping our world. There's, I just think, a, a new ubiquity mm-hmm. to software. So everybody knows what it is, and a few years ago people didn't really know what it was and didn't think it really had anything to do with them.
0: And when you started talking about what it was, you'd get into computer science terminology very quickly. It becomes this very technical description rather than what it actually is.
1: Yeah, so it's, it's really the, o- the only vocabulary present to hand when things got started around this was really the vocabulary of computer science Mm -hmm. and the question is can you develop another vocabulary uh, that would work for describing both technically what software does but also socially and culturally why it's important yeah And so why is my friend
0: Warren here actually an important person to be able to talk about this? Well, Warren has a Bachelor of Arts, Computer Science, and Psychology from Yale. He has a Master's of Science and a PhD in Media Arts and Sciences from MIT, and he's a former professor in the School of Information at Berkeley. He's affiliate faculty, Computer Science Department at UCSC. He formerly was a chair and a founding member of the Digital Arts and New Media MFA program at UCSC, where we worked together for nine years or so, and he is currently Uh, Is affiliate faculty for Center of Games and Playable Media, the School of Engineering at UCSC. Warren Sack is a media theorist, software designer, and artist whose work has been exhibited in SFMOMA, the Whitney Museum of American Art, the Walker Art Center, and the ZKM Center for Art and Media. He is the chair and a professor of film and digital media at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And Warren is also a close personal friend. Hi, Warren. Thanks for being here. (laughs) Hi, Lyle. So your book, Software Arts has a really wonderful foreword by John Rutschman, who kind of structures why, a little bit more about why um, this study is important at this time. Who's John? How do you know him? What does
1: he do? So John is a philosopher, a quite important philosopher who's bridged the worlds between France and the United States in terms of philosophy, and has also introduced a lot of philosophy ideas to uh, very important architects. Um, Just I guess not coincidentally, uh, John's father, Jan Reichman, was one of the people who invented um, computer memory. And John and I got to talking when um, he gave a seminar at MIT when I was a graduate student about philosophy and computers. And we've maintained our dialogue. He was on my PhD committee. Mm -hmm. And when I told him I wrote a book, he said that he'd be happy to write the foreword. The book is written about half in Santa Cruz and half in Paris, France, because I've spent a lot of time there, um, especially interacting with folks who are philosophers and, and others. And um, John's a good bridging figure that way, because people in Paris know him as well as people in New York.
0: How important are these topics for the general population versus in the academic space?
1: Well it gets back to this question of whether or not there's new vocabularies for talking about computers, software, networks and vocabularies that can connect to people's lives in ways that vocabulary from computer science can't can't or or doesn't just yeah. um and I so the difficulty in writing an academic book that makes sense to the to a larger public is that what you're trying to do in an academic book is put your voice in a set of ongoing conversations. There are very important thinkers from academia that I critique in the book. People like Donald Knuth, who was professor of computer science at Stanford, or Noam Chomsky, probably the best known linguist in mm-hmm. um, in the world. And that doesn't necessarily interest a, a general public.
0: Right, because at some level, you kind of have to understand Chomsky's argument. You have to understand these other arguments because you're that's the argument. That's the space the dialogue is happening in.
1: Right. So, so the book kind of had to do two things. One is introduce another vocabulary for talking about software, but also explain why it's doing something that these other vocabularies that computer science has um, cannot do mm-hmm. and so that can't be for everybody right, yeah. right? Yeah. so so we have to admit at some point that there is no general public right there are different publics yeah. and this will connect to some people and for, for others, it won't.
0: And I think that there's this the, the, the space that I'm kind of representing and coming from the software engineer person who's relatively aware of who Alan Turing was and kind of understanding the concept and what Babbage was doing with the early um, computing machines or conceptualized computing machines and what and Lovelace is doing in writing software, conceptually writing software. Those things actually are part of a bit of my uh, social structure in software engineering. So there's a, an interesting take. I wouldn't say it's the public, if you will, but from a software engineer's perspective or a geek's perspective that's kind of aware of these topic points, this book has been fascinating, um, of these topics have been fascinating. I wanted to kind of read a bit of, of John's intro to your book in the forward. John Reichman writes, The modern digital computer is the invention of two distinguished mathematicians, Alan Turing and John von Neumann working in the heyday of a rich debate about numbers and logic and a grand search for the laws of thought, which they then tried to introduce, perhaps it would be better to say translate, into the workings of a new kind of machine, the computer. The story of this invention has been told That of Bletchley Park and the Institute of Advanced Study, born of the urgencies of war, often elaborated in secrecy and government facilities against a formidable foe and mobilizing its own science tech sector. The invention would assume new forms after the war, it would become part of an ever expanding military industrial complex with us now as much as ever with our giant global internet companies, surveillance, hacktivism, cybersecurity, smart cities, and infrastructures. In the process, platforms themselves would pass from mainframe to PC, PC to smartphone, increasing in speed, efficiency, and reach, and leading to the operation's of our great number crunching algorithms in finance, politics and social media. The invention of the computer by these two great mathematicians carried on in military secrecy in short has led to an enormous complex in government and econ- economies alike touching on many aspects of the ways we think and live. First off, do you have any do you have anything that you would write differently if you were to write that? Any thoughts differently on It goes on, of course, for pages, but I'm not going to read it. You can read it. Right.
1: One of the main points of the book is exactly in um, contradiction to what John writes there. Yes. Um, The computer was not invented by mathematicians, um, and that's part of the point of the book. What we learned, yeah. Explaining uh, who did invent it or what were the people who invented it. But um, it does get right to the heart of the narrative frame of the book, which if you go to the Computer History Museum in Mountain View and you're familiar with those inventors and some of the names like Babbage and so forth, you could think of the book as telling that same story with some of those people in there, but with a twist, with um, some new stories connected to it. And one of the main issues there that comes up both in the book but also in John's foreword, because he's a philosopher, is what is digital intelligence? What is thinking? How do we do that now? How is Mm -hmm. that different than what we used to do? The book talks
0: a lot about what intelligence and learning and thinking actually is and how we talk about it from a concept from the computer perspective and back into us. And what I got on John's paragraph here is this whole idea of this military growth but one of the things I'm, I'm curious about right now, I think of the cutting edge stuff is happening in Silicon Valley, is happening in Palo Alto, is happening at Google, is happening at Facebook. But he's touching upon the military. And the truth is that stuff's happening in the public sphere to some degree, because those software engineers work for a while and they change jobs and they open source things to get people more collaborative. But there's also probably this very large software development in the secrecy space in the military side that we're just not as
1: aware of. If you look at the history of software, big things happen when the main focal user changes. So the first user, in some ways, is the military, if not the soldiers, then the generals uh, for computing ballistics and things like that. And then you move to the businessman, and it's very much a man. Um, This is IBM's business, Mm -hmm. and... That gets to the next one, which is really to the what we call the personal computer, Mm -hmm. where it's the home office or the individual who is the the primary user for a PC or a personal computer.
0: You're saying that those epochs are where all the research is happening, where the exciting stuff is happening. Well, things shift a lot,
1: right? So object-oriented programming is essentially invented because uh, Alan Kay and others are... Adele Goldberg are trying to develop a system for kids, right? Nobody's really done that, um, and suddenly you get all these things that come out, come out of trying to write software for kids, right? Which is a totally different user than the businessman. Trying it's to write software
0: as in games or for educational purposes. What, what for, stuff are they writing?
1: Uh, they're trying. They're trying to develop Small Talk as a <clears throat> construction kit. For kids to be able to write programs and write their own simulations. Okay, and that's
0: where object-oriented programming actually emerges to be able to talk about it to a child.
1: Well, I mean, it really emerges um, in Oslo, in Norway, um, in the late '60s, um, trying to write simulations, but it doesn't really get to what we would call object-oriented programming until um, these experiments at Xerox Park trying to develop things for kids. That This is also this is sort of the moment when Alan Kay comes up with the idea of the laptop computer, um, which he calls the Dynabook. And the whole notion of the Dynabook was to have something small that kids could carry around with them. So you look at the, his sketches from that time, and then you look at iPads, and you realize, like, well, that's what it is. <laughs> that's what it is, yeah. Um, Except and, that
0: there's very little programming happening on iPads.
1: Well, that is a big difference from what he had before, right? But the people who tend to be really innovative in the software space are thinking about a new kind of, a new person, if you will, somebody that hadn't really been considered the main user for which the design is being done. People target, if you will, a different population, right? So to write for businessmen, to write software for businessmen is a very different project than writing for... A child. And uh, writing for somebody who's at home is very different than writing for a big business, right? So, you know, now this is proliferating. So we, we see, for example, a lot of work, let's say Code for America, where they're writing for citizens, right? They're not writing for Personal pleasure or something like that. Writing for citizens, meaning or not for a, cities not a, itself. Not a
0: person, but a citizen that's a part of the government. Or the Wait, so so right. these
1: really aren't people, right? right? They're they're actually they're actually roles okay. that all of us we we're, were all children at one time. Right? Yeah, yeah. When you touched upon that, what it reminded me of is the um, a
0: later chapter we're talking about. We have an oral tradition for all education, where you have poems that that define how you learn. And then this idea that you start to have a conversation with the learning, where you start asking questions, which actually doesn't work very well in an oral space because um, you've got a poem that has to have a certain meter for it to be translated. Can you describe a bit of that, what I'm touching on that?
1: Well, what I'm describing is a a certain stream in media studies. I mean, we we can feel the contemporary moment of it where we keep track of our friends on social media, for example. And previously, we would have been writing letters to them or making telephone calls, Um, but we're looking at their posts on social media. So this stream of media studies starts with a set of classicists, for example, uh, Eric Havelock, or a little later people like Marshall McLuhan, who are trying to understand what happens when a society goes from keeping track of all its records and its memories um, orally, so no imagine mm-hmm. imagine that you're in a culture that doesn't have any written language. What do you tell the next generation, for example? Sure. So if you look at something like the Iliad and the Odyssey, these were just poems that were told by generation after generation of poets. They didn't write anything down. They just had to memorize. If you've ever seen it printed out, They're, these are really long books as yeah. we know them now. But they were really long poems that, and, and the stories that you'd in them perform. were important for the culture. Well, these these were in some sense schoolbooks, yeah, before books. There's like how, how, do you, how do you prosecute war? How do you run your uh, farm? How do you like deal with strangers who are coming to your island? How do you what is hospitality? Like, what is a good marriage? Like, all these things are sort of laid out. And it's
0: just shared culture for people that have, heard, even if they've never met each other in different areas, if they both know that story and know those stories, they can engage with each other with a shared common space.
1: Right. And yeah. so that's the that's the platform, if you will, of culture yeah. for a certain set. And then things shift radically about at the time of Plato when people start writing things down ubiquitously. Like, yeah. it's... Ancient Greece knows writing before that, but people don't start just writing stuff down until about the time of Plato. And then it's a really New ways thing. of engaging in thought and learning occur. Right. And if you read Plato, he's worried about things like, oh, like this writing, it's going to make us stupid because we won't have to remember anything. We can just write it down and look it up later. Right. And of course... So the same anxieties, right, happen when we shift from writing to print to film, to television, to new media. Each of these anxieties rearises, and also we kind of reorganize where culture gets stored, if you will. Yeah.
0: I want to talk um, in this introduction space a little bit more some of these fundamentals that we need to think about. And one of them that you touch upon quite a bit, in fact, um, if you know a bit about liberal arts, and you heard me describe these chapters, you'd go, oh, this sounds like um, the the definition of a liberal arts. So let's talk a bit about what the traditional liberal arts means. And when I say liberal arts, if you go to a u- university and you get an education, that's what you're engaging in is the liberal arts. Tell me what the foundation of that is.
1: Well, for about 2,000 years, um, education in Western Europe was organized around what they called the, the seven liberal arts. That wasn't Invented till about a thousand years ago, but it was still, it it has its roots much much older has much older roots. So there there were three arts of language, and that's what the book is organized around: logic, grammar, and rhetoric. And then there were four, lo- uh, and that's called the Trivium. That's called the Trivium. Just okay. means the three, right? Mm-hmm. And then there was the Quadrivium, the four, which were the, the arts of number which are arithmetic geometry music and astronomy so very different conception of music for example that it was all numerical Math. that's yeah. that's the way they thought about it um and some of these things shift uh, over the t- over time so at a certain moment music becomes much more of a language art people stop thinking about it in terms of strictly mathematics but start talking about well, what's this trying to communicate and part of the point of the book is that um, arithmetic as one of the seven liberal arts has been just dominant on the scene for the last 200 years. It's trying to, there's been multiple efforts to pull the language arts into a form of arithmetic. And so if you,
0: to translate the, it almost into a form of arithmetic
1: to translate it. Yeah. Yeah. So translation, the the chapter on translation is kind of uh a methods chapter if you will it's explaining how a lot of computer scientists think of what they do as translating so like translating from a writing a compiler to translate from a high level language to a low level language things like that but it's also um i think apt to describe what we're doing as software designers when we let's say take a evening at home watching the screen and turn it into a a completely different institution like netflix mm-hmm. where you just don't it's not the same thing it's slightly different than like getting videos or dvds from your local video store and going home and putting them in the tv and but the, watching the, them right the
0: metaphor stacks pretty cleanly i mean I don't, I don't see a lot of translation difference between you know going to the video store and getting a dvd and watching it versus finding on my service you know online service of choice
1: what what side effects are there that we're kind of ignoring well if it's done well then at least for the user that's being addressed it seems pretty seamless yeah. it seems like ah yeah, you know do it this way, do it that way, who cares? But obviously, for example, Netflix makes money off of this. Netflix didn't make money off this before, right? So... That is, there's an economic, a subtle shift. but really huge shift, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's not the same thing for a variety of reasons. Also,
0: when you go to the video store, when you drive down, the, even though that only happened for a short period of time in our in yeah. our culture of having video stores, but you did run into people you knew, or you got to know the person behind the counter. Sometimes they knew a lot about a certain topic. You could ask them questions. It definitely could you know, f- help fix your VCR, things of that right. nature. But there was a social aspect that's just not there anymore when you just do it from streaming.
1: Well, and if you think about, for example, Amazon has implications way beyond just the book business, but mm-hmm. they've killed off so many local bookstores. Um, little little video stores are really rare now. Uh, even big video stores, uh, Blockbuster, doesn't exist anymore right? right so so there's there's, there's maybe not of maybe the translation looks seamless to the person sitting at home watching the screen, but there's for, a large trans- trans- there's a whole bunch of other things that, that got done yeah. right yeah. if we can call it be sort of behind the scenes or um really the the back end the and, back end changed a lot,
0: yeah, and then sometimes <laughs> when you say shopping versus online shopping that that difference means towns changing <laughs> like it right. means fundamental things on how our, our society changes it means shipping you know like what it yeah. really means is a massive investment in shipping there are so many more drivers now there's so many more vehicles moving product around uh, that was very different prior to online shopping yes. I still find it ridiculous that we There was just recently uh, Amazon did that prime day and they were selling things that the cost was that, that makes no financial sense in any world <laughs> you know, you can buy this lamp for $4 and it gets shipped to your house. It's like, no, that's not even... That's the shipping price is more than $4. It's just... It's a completely new world and we call it online shopping, even though it really means a giant shift in the world. Kind of equivalent to, you know, before the printing press and after the printing press or before the automobile and after the automobile exists. The society worked completely different. Right. Okay, so this this book talks about we talk about all these, this, this is the kind of the, the realm of what this book is. If you'd like to get the book and kind of read along or read it before we have discussions in no way is what we're going to talk about be a spoiler because it's not going to cover the richness of the book in any way, but you're welcome to pick up a copy of this book. I think you can get it on Amazon, right? It's yeah. MIT you can press. get it
1: pretty much. You can get it from the MIT press, uh, um, site. You can get it from Amazon. You get it from a lot of places.
0: Yeah. It's called the software arts by Warren sack. And, uh, this is part one of our discussion around that. Anything else you want to talk about in the... Oh, you know what? I want to oh,
1: talk... Just, you know, Bookshop Santa Cruz
0: has it. Okay.
1: For your and local the Literary Santa... Guillotine has it too if you're if Find you're local.
0: your local bookstore and go <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, in fact, Bookshop Santa Cruz, we're both Santa Cruz people, so uh, Bookshop Santa Cruz also has a really great online store, which is kind of a neat thing that they, they've got. Um, so yes, engage in your local bookstore, especially if you like the feeling of walking into a place with lots of books which I personally do quite a bit. There is something else that I think is a good foundation we should talk about, critical theory. So I want to lay down for the the non-academics, what is critical theory? Why is it important to talk about this kind of topic space in academia? Kind of give us some thoughts around that. Do you want to touch on that? Well,
1: rather than say critical theory, let's just say close reading. So
0: Hmm. why do you want to separate yourself from the German?
1: I think that what I'm doing is not strictly critical. I'm I'm actually trying to show that there's another way to work productively in this, this area. And so it, it is partly critical, all right? But it's close reading because, well, one story about software that gets told again and again is that it comes out of logic. And... What I do in the book is I go back and look at the pivotal publications in that area and say, well, the kind of just-so story that gets told again and again doesn't necessarily hold water if if we read this stuff closely, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, for example, it was a philosopher who invented the logic circuit, this guy um, Peirce, Charles Sanders Peirce. And he invented it about 50 years before what uh, Claude Shannon did. So if you if you look at logic, Boolean circuits and things like that, the usual just-so story about it is that, well, that comes out of Claude Shannon's uh, 1936 master's thesis that he did at MIT. But as I show in the book, there's a letter from Peirce to... One of his old students, who is then chair of the art history department at Princeton, is saying, you should build your logic machine not with wood, but with electrical circuits. And he, he sketches out an, an and circuit and an, an or circuit, which are two of the basic building blocks of of Boolean circuits, So, or logic circuits. Which or we, logic we circuits. we call Boolean circuits, but of course, right, right. Playable, yeah. or logic circuits. Here. And so, so the question is, well, does it come out of MIT? Or does it come out of this thinking that uh, this philosopher and well, semiotician so, did? So, so why it's, does that it's, matter? It, it's, it, it matters because I think, well, let me just say something about one of the motivations I have for the book, which is I teach a lot of art students how to program. And oftentimes, they come predisposed, predisposed. even our digital arts and new media people come predisposed saying, well, this doesn't really have to do with me or my art practice. Um, and so the attempt is to show that, yes, it does. Actually, it comes out of the arts and the humanities, these ideas. They might not look familiar, but if you stare long enough, you'll see that actually they're quite familiar and that the way you approach things as an artist or as a humanities scholar is perfectly appropriate to making software because that's where a lot of the ideas of this stuff come from. So you're opening it up to another audience of creators. Yeah. yeah. So that's that, I think that's, in terms of my teaching, that's the important part is to get a bunch of people who might think that software is not really my thing uh, to think, well, maybe it is. Yeah.
0: When, when we first met, you were hired at UCSC as a faculty uh, with funding because of this new program called Digital Arts New Media, which I was actually one of the first staff members on. And as we created that program and started structuring it, it became very clear that we needed to take these grad students that were coming in to get an MFA and make sure that they under ha- had some foundations in technology because, you know, with Digital Arts New Media, you've got to have some, some tools in your belt to be able to produce this kind of uh, rich, tactical artwork. And one of those problems was the introdu- you know—trying to take a general artist, you know, professional already um, in art, and give them software skills, and that was probably the one of the most continual uh, conversations throughout my tenure there is how do we do this well, how do we take a, a lot of peop- a lot of different types of people and teach them this ability to software, when every software one-on-one book that you pick up traditionally is from science from the sciences and very much is not about creating um creating artwork creating anything really because the fundamentals are like this is a variable this is a function this is a an you know an operator these very technical terms that don't correlate directly to you know doing an installation (laughs) about society or something so I find it, so it feels like as I saw this problem and ran into it over and over again and thought about like, how do you do this and step in, help teach a class on it and such, you're forming this book that talks about why it's this way, you know, how it's how it started, how, how it's become this thing that we talk about in the math and sciences rather than in the, the arts, if you will. Would you think that moving that idea of where its ownership is would open up to so much more people? Wouldn't it close down the, so- the software study concepts to the more rigorous mathematician type of
1: mind? Well, one thing that I hope people who are not in academics see is that what I'm saying is oftentimes quite commonsensical. Computer science as an academic discipline didn't even start until Purdue founded a department in i think it was 1962 right? right there was no computer science before that yeah well i think actually rand the the defense contractor had a department a couple years before that but that that was the first one and then carnegie what was called carnegie tech at the time now carnegie mellon and then yale and then there was a few sort of so computer science as a notion is is new. It's in the nineteen sixties. This whole notion of of algorithm as we understand it today, um, it was really founded in the nineteen sixties. It wasn't it wasn't what we think of as that at all. It was yeah. this um Stanford Professor Donald Knuth who who made it that way. And it developed a certain way of teaching this, computer science did. And um it's had Uh, terrible diversity problems, right? If you look at it at the beginning, most of the programmers, and we're talking about, you know, people who are working for the military and so forth, most of them are women. When I graduated as an undergraduate uh, in the mid-1980s, 37% of uh, nationwide, of the undergraduates who are finishing with a computer science degree were women. And now... We're down to 17%. And if you look at the diversity statistics in Silicon Valley, some of this has been very nicely translated, uh, um, crowdsourced by uh, Tracy Chu, who's a software engineer, and and others. It's about 20% of people are that because the interview techniques that, the large companies use are largely taken from academic computer science so they for example they quiz you on algorithms at the beginning well but then anybody who's who's done big software systems knows that that's not indicative of whether or not i'm going to be a good software designer right like that is so um academic and there's so many other things that you have to do that computer science uh, needs at least to fulfill the demands of of industry and so forth needs to open up in right. many ways. Uh, so, so I think uh, a lot of people who are seeing it with that kind of practical uh, perspective will say, "Well, the book in some ways is a call to to open this up. Yeah, that just makes it much more practical and much more, you know." Uh, interdisciplinary the way that you have to be interdisciplinary to be a software to designer represent the world, right? Like yeah. if you're going to be a real software designer you can't for example not care about colors or something like that. Like right. your, your interface is going to suck. Right.
0: Um,
1: earlier you mentioned the businessman,
0: the businessman, IBM and the businessman. You said very specifically man and I want to touch upon gender at that point because it seemed like you were being uh, sexist in just the description of that but you clearly have an idea of why that's a, a man in that role. Can you elaborate? in this
1: context of gender so my colleagues who do computer history which is a very specific brand of of history mm-hmm. that mostly deals with hardware but sometimes deals with software um so the computer history museum in mountain view they just opened a new software department a couple of years ago right before that it all harder, been hardware harder, hard. yeah. and in fact they're, they have an exhibition right now about software, but it's mostly about hardware.
0: Well, hardware is a, a lot easier to put in a museum.
1: Yeah. Well, software is a little esoteric. A little harder. Yeah. But the um, some of the studies by people like uh, uh, Nathan Enterberg show that the these interview tests and so forth.
0: The algorithm tests, the yeah. academic algorithm tests for a programmer.
1: Mm-hmm. They're, they're they're actually filtering out women, even if they're not predictive of whether or not you're going to be a good software designer. They're mm-hmm. actually filtering out women.
0: Do you think that's associated with what IBM was doing when they were creating the software for the business man?
1: Well, I, I just think that, you know, if, if you watch a television show like Mad Men or something sure. like that, that's you what see totally it just in my mind. Yes. <laughs> but it's just massively patriarchal society yeah. that we we suffered through
0: is strong in the fifties and into the sixties. Right. You're writing software at that period. And so second wave
1: feminism comes and changes all kinds of things. And I just think what you're seeing in software design, what you're seeing in computers more generally, what you were seeing in terms of just how things ran day to day and who got the job and so forth. That, that was a, a reflection of, but had its techniques particular to uh gender discrimination. Yeah. You know, and that's so I'm um, I'm I'm not trying to be sexist by saying that they were designing for businessmen. I'm I'm just saying that that's They were being the, sexist. Those, by... were the, <laughs> those were the guys yeah. and they were being sexist. Yeah. And yeah. that's the way things were. And so and, yeah. and that embeds happens to embed when
0: all these programs are spinning up software study software engineering schools, right? Computer right. science schools is that you kind of like have these people that are writing software for men. They happen to be some of them, a lot of the men and the in the field kind of dominates into that space. Where we definitely have that problem in our society right now. Silicon so Valley, you see it quite a bit, and this is one of those things that it's. Clearly beneficial for companies, or at least my personal opinion, and, and the companies I've been working for feel this way as well. That it's very beneficial to have a diverse uh, set of employees, and if you've got this one-sidedness, like gender imbalance, you're not being as you know as good as you could be. And so there's this soft, there's this desire to change that and shift that. At the same time, you see these amazing, you know, these studies coming out of Google about what actually is effective in interviewing for software engineers, and almost nothing is. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> almost everything's a flip of a coin, right. um, except for once in a while when you have a real amazing expert in the field who happens to be good at picking people. We don't know how to duplicate that. And then other situations where, you know, probably the best thing to do would just be hire people and let them work for three three months. And at the end of that period, go, yeah, you're good and you're not. Which, of course, is not an easy way to ask someone to change their career. Hey, come over here. You'll work for three months and then we might fire you. Um, so it's not very practical. But it is. It's fascinating how much when you find out, if some. If, if, ask a question, are you a good software engineer? It's really, do you remember your software engineering 101 course on data structures? That's really the question, that, what it translates. It's a hard thing to fight. I, I do that quite a bit <laughs> where I work.
1: And a lot of standardized tests work that way in, within academia as well, right? Yeah. The, the, the SATs that we ask uh, seniors in high school to take, or juniors in high school to take, to figure out admissions for college, oftentimes tests, for example, the math from several years prior, and one of the problem of prepping for the test is just remembering that your math from back in the day, right? Not like what you just learned as a junior in high school or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So, I think that testing is a really difficult uh, thing. But one thing that we we forget, um, I, I think, the, the the historical stuff is. The historical stuff um, helps us remember, uh, for example, that the person who wrote the first computer program was a woman, Ada Lovelace. And the person who invented computer languages was a woman, Grace Hopper. And these are not obscure figures. These are pivotal, foundational figures. And so that helps us, I, I think, re- reset, recalibrate like who we think a software Uh, Engineer looks like, or who a computer scientist looks like.
0: Which really is crucial due to the fact that almost everything is running on software. Governments running on software, or political structures, or car manufacturing, pretty much anything you can think of, there's a piece of software in there that actually codifies what we think is the right thing to do. It's
1: not a niche interest anymore. It is not.
0: And if you're interested in this topic, stay tuned for future episodes of Geek Speak, where we'll continue on chapters of this book and talking about this topic. I hope you enjoyed yourself, Warren, chatting with me today. Thanks, Lyle. Thank you very much. Warren Sack is a professor of digital art and new media at UCSC. He's also the chair of the film and digital media department. And you can get his book from MIT Press and also at some of your local bookstores, depending on where it is. But of course, online, just look for The Software Arts by Warren Sack. Let's say about six years ago, I visited you in France, I think.
1: Yeah. No, you were there seven years ago. Seven years ago. Yeah. Right when you started the book then. And I'd ri- I'd written some stuff the year before that for the proposal. Right. Yeah. Um, are you nervous at all? I don't know. I just feel like I'm having a conversation with my friend Lyle with lots of gear. There's lots of gear in the room. But that's not that unusual for our relationship. That's true. We do really have <laughs> tech around
0: us. At least computers. It is funny that there's, we've probably had 30 or 40 conversations in the last seven years around the topics that are kind of touched on this book. And never have we had microphones hot at the time. That's right. And pretty consistently after the conversation, I went, man, I wish I'd had a microphone on. (laughs) (laughs) That was
1: great.